How's everyone doing? Good. All right, we're going to get into the word. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It says this, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now, we're going to get into a few more verses today. I'm going to speak on that verse a little bit more, then we'll, we'll tread a little bit further. Uh, let's pray before we study God's word. Lord, we're privileged to be in your presence right now. We're thankful for the blood of your son, which covers our sins. We thank you, God, that you are so good to us. We thank you for everything you've blessed us with physically. We thank you for everything you've blessed us with spiritually. Lord, we want to take some time right now to see what your word has to say to us. And so I pray that you'd open up our hearts to receive from you. Thanks for uh, Elohim Church down in Belize, for Pastor Smith, and their heart for missions, and their heart to be difference makers in their country, and even for them considering ways that they need to get outside their community and go to other parts of Belize and be missionaries. We ask your blessing on their service today. We pray you continue to flourish them, God, in all the things of you. And Lord, we pray for our church that you continue to do your work in us and through us. Continue to use our pray and go. Continue to use our mission trips. Continue to use our summer camps. Continue to use our VBSs and all the ministries that we have going on weekly for your glory. That your hand would be upon each one of them. Lord, thanks for the privilege of being able to serve your kingdom and to serve you. Let us truly consider it a privilege and not a burden. And we thank you, God, most of all for who you are, for your love for us. Amen. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal last month uh, by a therapist, uh, a degreed therapist. The title of the article was, Don't Believe in God, Lie to Your Children. And she goes on and says, as a therapist, I'm often asked to explain why depression and anxiety are so common among children and adolescents. One of the most important explanations, and perhaps the most neglected, is declining interest in religion. This cultural shift already has proved disastrous for millions of vulnerable young people. She goes on a little bit later. I'm often asked by parents, How do I talk to my child about God if I don't believe in God or heaven? My answer is always the same. Lie. The idea that you simply die and turn to dust may work for some adults, but it doesn't help children. Belief in heaven helps them grapple with this tremendous and incomprehensible loss. In an age of broken families, distracted parents, school violence, and nightmarish global warming predictions, imagination plays a big part in children's ability to cope. Now think about what she's saying here. Like a godless worldview can't help you navigate the highs and lows of life. So much so, if that's the case, she's recommending as a therapist who works with families and children 
to lie to your children. A focus on the physical world is not sufficient. There's more, and it is key to living, right? One author commenting on the article said this, If belief in God in an afterlife, in heaven, and in meaning that transcends death is so good for children and adults alike, and if it's necessary to fully make sense of this world, we might consider the possibility that all these things are actually true. Right? I mean, if she's saying it's, it's helpful and it's good and it helps people work and make sense of the world, then maybe there's actually something to the fact that there is a God and that there is truth. It's interesting that when children are exposed to truth, it makes a lasting impact on them. But so is the opposite. When children are exposed to lies, it makes a lasting impact on them as well. Now, I remember hearing years ago that they took a group of kids that were brought up believing in evolution, and they took those kids and they presented the creation account to him and said, do you think that's, that's plausible? And the kids that were brought up believe in evolution when they were presented with creationism, they said, actually, yeah, that, that, that could be possible. That makes sense. So then that same group, they took other kids that were brought up believing in creationism and they presented evolution to them. And guess what their response was? That's ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. So I decided to test that theory out a number of years ago on my older kids. When they were around seven to nine, we were riding home. I remember it. We were riding home from church. And I said to them, uh, did you know that some people think we come from monkeys? There's just long silence. And then they just burst out laughing. <laughs> and they thought I was joking. And I explained I was serious, and, and, you know, I kind of gave them, like, the watered-down version of evolution, you know, that over time, these monkeys, and guess what? Guess what their first question was? Well, why are there still monkeys today? Like, if everything has evolved, why, like, how'd they get stuck back there? And then their second question was, like, where's all the in-between? Right? So even, even to young minds... It, I mean, once it started turning, like, there's a problem here. And I personally remember sitting in my ninth grade biology class, and the teacher even gave a disclaimer. I'm not actually sure why, uh, but he gave a disclaimer when we came to the evolution section and said, some of you might not believe this, but this is in the textbook. I'm required to teach it. I remember reading it, and this one little set of pictures stands out on my mind, and it's when they're trying to explain how the giraffe got his long neck. You know, so it shows like this little giraffe with, you know, like a really short neck. <laughs> and then it shows him like eating from a tree that is really short to the ground and there's leaves and he can reach those leaves, right? But then it shows like other animals eating those leaves. And so then, he, then there's no leaves for the little short giraffe with the regular neck. So then he's like stretching out to try to get to the higher leaves, you know? So the next picture shows his neck just a little bit longer. And then the next picture, a little bit long. I'm like, and I just remember seeing that. Even in ninth grade, I was like, that's kind of a stretch. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) I mean, that was their explanation. 
and evidence for evolution. And I was like, you know, is this the best they got? Well, there was a book written a while back. Some of you have read it. It's called Ideas Have Consequences by Richard Weaver. And really the title of the book says it all. Ideas have consequences. The idea that we evolved from monkeys, there's a consequence to believe in that. The idea that there is no God, there's a consequence to believe in that. And ideas, here's what I want you to understand. Ideas are not like just little individual units that simply are in their own little bubble. No, ideas aren't secluded. They spread out. They have influence. They make an impact. So when we, when we are formulating ideas, we have to make sure that it fits within a biblical worldview that we have. Are you hearing me? So what does this have to do with First Thessalonians? Everything. Because the, the beliefs, the thoughts, the ideas that you anchor yourself to will affect you. And it will affect others around you. So today, I want us to see that we need to live a life anchored in Christ by God's grace and peace. Live a life anchored in Christ by God's grace and peace. So go back to 1 Thessalonians 1. The normal letter would be set up. If you were living back in the time of Paul writing a letter to someone. We kind of do it backwards today, if you think about it. When we write a letter, of course, when was the last time you actually wrote a letter and actually sent it in the mail except for a Christmas card? But we always sign it at the end, right? It's kind of backwards if you think about it. It kind of does make sense to put your name at the beginning of the letter so they know who it's from. So that was the, the standard setup for a letter back in the Roman time. So Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, he's introducing himself. Then he says who he's writing to to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But then here he changes course a little bit. It was normal to give some type of salutation. But he says, grace to you and peace. Now, the grace, he actually takes a little bit of a normal uh, Greek word and he morphs it just a little bit and he uses the word that we know as grace. Anyone know that Greek word? Charis, that's right, charis. He takes that Greek word and just keeps the noun form, doesn't mess with the infinitive or the verb or anything. That was uncommon. Then he adds the peace, which was also uncommon. So what is he trying to get across here? One, he wants to make sure that it's just not, he's just not going through some normal salutations and just kind of, you know, the normal formal thing of, hey, how's it going? Okay, let's get on to the meat of the letter. No, what he's doing is he wants to draw specific attention to grace itself. Charis, grace. So it's not just like greetings or hey or hi. That's kind of how we are today. Well, that's how the Romans were back then. But it's actually the word grace. And then peace. That's how the Jews would greet one another. What's that word in Hebrew? Shalom, right? That's the common Jewish meaning. And when the Jews wished someone peace, here's what they were doing. They were reminding them of the coming Messiah promised in the Old Testament. Why? Well, because that Messiah was supposed to usher in this period of peace. So it wasn't about 
This peace wasn't about inner emotional calmness or tranquility. No, when, when, when Paul says peace, what he's referring to is the saving relationship between God and a person, or between God and his people. So each one of us, we're in covenant relationship with God. We have peace with God, but it's not some subjective thing. Sometimes when we talk about peace, uh, we mean no war. I mean, that's kind of, if you talk about what is peace, you go outside and ask them, what does peace mean? They're probably going to say, mention something about not being in a fight or not having war, no conflict, no struggle. That's not really the Jewish idea fully. Other times people talk about, oh, I don't have a piece about it. That also is not what the Bible usually has in mind when it talks about peace. God's peace, it's not just the absence of conflict, okay? That's part of it. But it's not just the absence of conflict, but it's the fullness of health and harmony through reconciliation with him. There's not just, when you, when you are reconciled to God, you, you have peace with God, but that doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. It means the fullness of harmony with him. Because you can be at peace with a nation, right? I mean, supposedly we're at peace with a whole lot of nations. And maybe there's no conflict, really, but that doesn't mean we're full of harmony with them. That doesn't mean everything is great with them. So when we talk about this idea of peace... It's concerned with wholeness, with soundness. It signifies prosperity in the widest sense, especially, and hear this, in spiritual things. So again, Paul's not just giving a perfunctory hello. This is a theological greeting. It's a theological greeting. So first, peace with God. Let's just look at it a little bit. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, I'm in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not subjective, but it's objective. I mean, that's, that's a great thing. I mean, we'd have a problem if it was subjective. Think about if you just put that into the verse. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have subjective peace with God. I mean, if it's subjective, what does that mean? It'd be based on personal feelings or opinions. You feel like you're good with God. Well, that's not very promising. It'd be subjective. That's, that's not a good place to be. Peace with God today, but maybe not peace with God tomorrow. So if you read it, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have objective peace with God. What does that mean? It's based on fact, not Feelings. It's based on truth, not some whim of ours. And over and over in the New Testament, God's actually referred to the God of peace. That's how they refer to him. Look at Romans 16. Some of you are going to really like this verse. Romans 16. He starts in verse 19. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And then look at verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now think about that for a second. I mean, don't you just love that? The God of peace will soon crush Satan. Right? 
It's not the God of war, though. It's the God of peace. I mean, he's taking care of business. In order to have true peace, he's got to take care of Satan. The God of peace is going to come and fulfill what he said he would. With Satan, there's enmity, there's war, there's strife. So the God of peace has to come in and take care of him. I mean, that's my kind of peace. So God comes to us, and guess what? He offers to each one of us terms of peace. Because we were enemies of God. You know that, right? We were enemies of God. So before our salvation, we were against him. Look at Romans 5, verse 10. Actually, let's start in verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. What are we saved from? What are we saved from? What are we saved from? Okay. We're saved from the wrath of God. And look what he says. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So, as unbelievers, before God was gracious to save us, we were his enemies. What does he come? He comes and offers terms of peace to each one of us. The God of peace comes and offers those terms. What are the terms? Surrender. Yield. Give up. Stop fighting. Because we're the enemies. But he's the God of peace, offering peace. He comes to us and offers the terms. And we can accept the terms or reject the terms. And many of us, right, for many years, we rejected those terms. We wanted to have it our way. So we remained enemies of God. And he kept coming, offering terms of peace, terms of peace, terms of peace. And think about that for a second. All those times God's coming to us. And what is he doing? He's showering us with his goodness. He's displaying his love for us. And we talk about God's goodness. I call it the trio of goodness. All right? The trio of goodness. Say the trio of goodness. When you examine the goodness of God, there's, there's really three attributes associated with his goodness. All right, listen to this because you need to learn this. You could even call them three aspects of, it, of the attribute of goodness if you wanted to. That's the tree of goodness, mercy, grace, and patience. A lot of times people commingle these, especially kind of mercy and grace. They kind of commingle them. But let's just kind of define them quickly. God's mercy. It's God's goodness towards those in mercy and distress. It's his goodness towards those in mercy and distress. Uh, Misery, excuse me, misery. His grace. How's How's that an aspect of his goodness? Because it's God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. Well, what about his patience? What's God's goodness in withholding of punishment towards those who sin over a period of time? I I actually like some of the more archaic word for patience, long-suffering. 
I mean, that kind of gives it a pretty clear picture. I mean, he's, he's, putting, he's putting up with it. He's allowing it to occur. Why? In hopes of repentance, right? So mercy, it's God's goodness towards those in misery and distress. Grace, God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. Patience, God's goodness in withholding of punishment toward those who sin over a period of time. Not, a lot of times we talk about like being patient or something like that. That's like nothing compared to God's patience. Okay, because God sees us in all our sinfulness and wickedness. And he, he exercises great patience in not taking action right away and doing something about it. If he did, we'd, we wouldn't all be here. None of us. He's long-suffering. And Exodus 34 encapsulates this idea of the trio of the goodness of God. Look at Exodus 34. This is Moses with the Lord. Verse 1, he had to cut two new tablets because Moses threw them down. He was upset. Verse 4, he cut the tablets of stone like the first. He rose early in the morning, went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. Then Look at this. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That is kind of the heart cry of the Old Testament. And it's a great description of who God is. When it comes to God's grace, here's what we need to understand. God isn't obligated to give it to anybody. If he was obligated, it really wouldn't be grace. So he's not required to ever give it. Here's what Romans 9 says. It's actually quoting the Old Testament. It says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So he's gracious to whom he'll be gracious. And 1 Peter 5 says that God is the God of all grace. So if there's any grace to be given, it's going to be coming from God. It's all his. So grace in the scripture is always viewed. Listen to this. Grace in the scripture is always viewed as a gift. It's always viewed as a gift. And if you think about it, if he isn't obligated to give it, he doesn't have to give it, then it, then it really has to be a gift. Think of what Romans 3.23 says. Since we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God... They are justified by his grace as a gift. Justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And think about Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. It is the gift of God. Part of that gift is God giving grace. By grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. So two things I want us to note. We could note many things, but two things I want us to note about God's grace. Because this is part of the grace to you. That's what Paul's saying, grace to you. Again, it's not just some 
obligatory opening to the letter. He's wanting to communicate something to them. Grace to you. Two things to note. God's grace is sufficient. Look at 2 Corinthians 12. This is Paul with a thorn in the flesh. Verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So my grace is sufficient. What does that mean? It's enough. God's grace is enough. It gets the job done. It's grace and grace alone. Grace and grace alone. Nothing needs to be added to it. You ever been at the, at the dinner table and people are going back for seconds and at my house they go back for thirds and sometimes my boys go back and fourths, okay? <clears throat> and you run out of food eventually. But not with grace. There's plenty to go around. There's plenty for seconds, thirds, fourths, fifths. <clears throat> There's plenty of grace. And it is sufficient. But second... God's grace is efficient. So it's sufficient. It gets the job done. It's enough. Don't need anything else. Think about that. Because sometimes what happens with grace is we actually don't think it's sufficient. We don't think it's sufficient. So we think we've got to do something. We've got to add something. God's grace is sufficient. Like, we'll say that, <clears throat> but do we really believe it? Because we try to do things to add to God's grace to help him out. We try to do things to make ourselves feel better or hope that maybe God feels better about us. Friends, you don't have to do anything to make God feel any better about you. I mean, he, he has an infinite love for you. An infinite love. Okay? He, he, he literally can't love you anymore. I, I remember as a, as a kid, my mom always, you know, talking to me about that like i love you and i really love you and explaining what that meant but she's like but god loves you more and i was like well i thought you loved me mom <laughs> and that was hard for me to wrap my mind around that god had more love for me than my mom but and she was trying to say look you know how much i love you how much more does god love you and yes, we parents, like, we love our kids, right? We'd even lay our lives down for our kids. But we, we, we can't and we don't have an infinite love for our kids. But God does. And it, you can't add anything to an infinite, an infinite supply of something, right? If you've got an infinite supply of money, you keep, I mean, you just add money, so you've got an infinite supply. You can't really add, God can't say, oh, yeah, you know what, I've been, I've been doing a, a poor job lately of loving you. I'm going to increase my love for you. No, that's what we talk about. Because we're falling short. We need to increase our love for God. We need to increase our love for our neighbors. But not so with the Lord. It's an infinite supply. I mean, how blessed are we to think about that? That's why First John talks about, chapter 3, like how great a love has the Father bestowed upon us. I mean, just think about that. Friends, we hear about God's love all the time. But we've got to take some time at points to really think about it like how great that love is this infinite love that god has for each one of us 
endless supply of love. He's never going to run out. Never. So God's showering us, excuse me, he's showering us with his, with his goodness. It's a sufficient grace that he has for us. It's also efficient. Listen to Ephesians 3. It says this in verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. What's that saying? Like wherever God pours out his grace, it works. It's efficient. It does the work that God wants it to do. Now, if you don't need, uh, if, you, if you think you need something else, then, then you're mistaken. You don't need anything else. God's grace is efficient for your salvation. It's not grace plus works. It's not grace plus baptism. It's not grace plus communion. It's none of those things. It's grace. It's grace and grace alone. Sola gratias. Grace alone. So you have God's grace poured out on you. And guess what, friends? You have salvation. You don't have God's grace poured out on you. Guess what? You don't have salvation. So how do we get God's grace and peace? We got to anchor ourselves in Christ. That's the only way. Now look back at 1 Thessalonians. And we're going to read through just the first 10 verses. But I want you to pay attention to something as we're reading through it. I want you to pay attention to how many times there's a reference to God the Father. I want you to pay attention to how many times there's a reference to the Son. And I want you to pay attention to how many times there's a reference to the Spirit. Think you can do that? All right. Here we go. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. What's the count at? Well, two, really. God the Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. All right, what's the count at? Okay. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Good. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. I'm going to pause every time you guys tell me what we're at, okay? Is that little little thing going on here? Okay. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Nine, So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. 13. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 15. 
Friends, 15 times, 10 verses, 15 times God is referenced, whether it's the Father, whether it's the Son, whether it's the Spirit. And guys, Paul doesn't just repeat things to repeat things, all right? He's not a broken record. So why mention the Father, the Son, and the Spirit so many times? To emphasize that we need to be close to God. That everything that he's instructing us right now through the word is to emphasize God and God alone. To show us the importance of being anchored to Christ. You know, everything that's going on with us needs to be permeated with Christ. You know, we're soaking it in and we're living. Christ needs to be a part of everything we're doing, everything we're involved in. Now, some of you guys might own a boat. But have you, have you, even if you don't own one, have you ever been out on a boat, like a smaller boat, not like a cruise ship, okay? Just like a small boat, and you want to drop anchor, because maybe the kids want to hop out and go swimming for a bit. What do you do? You, you know, you take that anchor, you know, and you let it out over the side of the boat, you just let go. I mean, you kind of do, but you got the rope attached to the anchor, right? So you kind of keep your hand loosely on that rope. But you don't let go of the line, right? Why? Because depending on the current, depending on how the wind's blowing, you can drift away pretty quickly. Right? And you don't want to be far from that anchor. So you got a, you got a decision to make. Anytime you drop that anchor, you got to figure out how much slack am I going to leave in the line? How much slack am I going to leave? How close do I want to be to the anchor? And here's the thing, like some people, they're like, oh, I'm, I'm anchored to Christ. I'm anchored to Christ. But like they got like 400 feet of slack in the line, you know, like the anchor's like way down there. But they're anchored. You know, like we want to be anchored to Christ. We want that line to be taut. We want it to be nice and tight. Here's the thing, though. I mean, my, my, my father-in-law, he, he owns a boat. Here's what amazes me about those boat anchors. Like he or my mother-in-law, like either one of them, they can pick up that anchor, you know, and they're a little bit older, but they can pick up that, they can even pick up that anchor with like one hand. I mean, what's that anchor weigh? Like 20, 30 pounds or something like that? It can keep this like massive boat that weighs hundreds, maybe a thousand pounds from drifting away. I'm like, how's that work? You know, you ever think about that? It's a little tiny anchor. I mean, it weighs like 20 pounds or 30 pounds or something. But it can keep that big old boat from drifting away. But think about, like, how much more Christ with you? Like, he's like the mega anchor. He's not some little 20-pound anchor. He's like this massive anchor, and if you're anchored to him, you're not going anywhere. All right? You're going to stay right by his side. And think about Paul. You know, Paul, when he's headed to Rome, he's already had his three missionary trips, but now he's headed to Rome uh, because he appeals to Caesar, right? Acts 27, they're, they're having some, some major issues at sea, if you remember. Here's what it says in Acts 27. It says, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. I mean, he's kind of given the general consensus of all the people on the ship. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. What does Paul say? He's like, oh man, I got this. No, he doesn't say that. But he's like, God's got this. 
And, you know, he goes to the, the captain. He's like, look, God's got this. Every person on this ship is going to end up safe. No one is going to die on this ship. Even though you guys all lost hope, you think everything's abandoned. We've tossed everything over the side. They even get to the point where they cut the anchors. Like, what are you thinking? <clears throat> they cut the anchors, and, and he gives them that, that promise. Based on what? What God told him. I mean, that's like our lives. We, we got the storms of life. We got the winds of affliction. We got the tidal waves of commotion. But we have Christ, our anchor. He's the anchor. How does, how does that happen? How are we anchored to Christ? Well, part of it is what Paul is getting at here. Grace to you and you and you and you. Grace and peace. Like God's gracious to us. And we can anchor ourselves to Christ. We, we, we were enemies of God, and he comes with the terms of peace. We can take those terms. We can't change the terms. We try sometimes. But we can t- take or leave those terms. Praise God that many of us have taken those terms, right? To come to peace with God, to no longer be an enemy. How does that occur? Through faith in Jesus. That's the term. This is surrender, right? Hey, you got all these issues. You're my enemy. You got to surrender. You got to give up. And I offer you forgiveness. I will come to peace with you. I will forgive you of everything you've done against me. Why will I do that? Because what my son did for you. I'll forgive you. Will you trust in what he did? Will you put your trust in his finished work? That's the question. That's the terms of peace. And what happens? We come to terms. We, get those, we, we see those terms and, and God in his mercy, we accept those terms. The gift of God is eternal life. He offers that out to us. I don't know why more people don't take him up on the offer. Well, I do, pride. We want to do things our own way. So we've got to hold fast to Christ. And this is where we start every single day. We start with Christ. Anchored in Christ in the trio of the goodness of the Father. What would, what, what's the trio of goodness? Mercy, grace. What was the last one? Patience. Patience. All right. Everyone say, I am anchored in Christ. In the trio of goodness of the Father. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. That through your son, we receive an infinite supply of grace, an infinite supply of mercy, an infinite supply of patience. And that we're anchored in your beloved son. Lord, would you today give the gift of faith to someone here that doesn't know you? Would you have them trust in the work that your son did for them? Would you have them push aside pride and anything holding them back? Let them humble themselves in your presence and trust in you.
and who you are and your goodness. Thank you, Father, that salvation comes from you. That we don't have to jump through hoops to get it. That you offer it to us as a gift. You are very good to us, Lord. And we thank you.